0: There's things beyond research and academia, and time should be dedicated to those things, too. Welcome to the Reproducibility podcast, a podcast hoping to help early career researchers engage in the open science movement. I'm Will Nyam, postdoc at the University of Chicago, residing and working on the unceded lands of the Kickapoo, Peoria, Miami, and Potawatomi nations. And today, I'm joined by...
1: Sarah. 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 <laughs> it's been a while since we're together. It's really nice to be able to, to have a chat again. Yeah. So I'm coming to you today from, from Lincoln, and where I'm an immigrant on the land of the people who colonized the land that I've called home for most of my life, which is so called Canada.
0: I hear you're um, going to go to SIP soon. Are you excited about that?
1: I am. I am so excited. It's my favorite conference, and I'm very much looking forward to, to going in person again.
0: Yeah. I, are you the type? To want people to come and say hi to you that may know you from this podcast.
1: <laughs> yeah, that'd be cool actually. I feel like we just make it like it goes out into the void. I don't know who actually listens. Yeah. So it'd be really nice, yeah, to meet some listeners.
0: Yeah. So if you're also at Zips, I think this episode will come out before then. If you're, yeah, it will. If you're at Zips and uh, you're, yeah, listening to this podcast, go, go see, say hi to Sarah. I can't go find her.
1: <laughs> find me. You look for yellow hair.
0: Uh, Yeah. Um, So this episode, we're talking about academic labor, specifically invisible and unrewarded work. And that's quite a heavy topic. So, just to get people ready to digest it, we're going to start with our little appetizer, uh, which is this paper by Hosler, just recently published in the Journal of Trial and Error. Um, called the invisible workload of open research. Um, That's a great journal name. Yeah, so the I've journal. I've
1: come across it before.
0: Yeah, the journal of trial and error is great. Um, it's run by the Center for Trial and Error. The journal is, uh, I think, diamond open access. Mm. And yeah, it's uh, I, I forgot who started it, but it was the idea is like you should publish your mistakes or like what didn't work and mm. like
1: your process.
0: Um, so that was the original, like sort of bent of the journal and now it's kind of expanded a little into like meta research and things like that yeah so highly recommend um checking it checking them out uh, and supporting them
1: Uh, Cool. yeah so tell us more about this this particular paper
0: yeah so um this paper um takes sort of a uh unique view i guess in the sense that like it's not one that i've heard people take a lot and it's the view that um Open research will actually increase the workload on researchers if we don't address some of the capitalistic structures in academia. So I think that's,
1: that's a, a good capitalist critique in an academic paper.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, just, they sort of apply a theory of uh, academic capitalism and mm-hmm. look at what open research reforms. Um, what impacts that will have on uh, yeah, on the current structures and on the individuals, sort of saying, treating universities as these purely capitalistic um, entities. And in taking that stance, you can see how um, individuals who work in, within the university sort of bear the brunt of some of these changes and these um, reforms. So I thought that was a great, um, sort of great perspective to take and to write about. Um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: So, yeah, um, I want to highlight some of the like quotes from the paper that sort of spoke to me. Mm. Um, so I, one of the things that is pointed out is that the way universities operate usually neglect the fact that the majority of researchers, I'm quoting directly from the paper, are employed not solely as researchers, but rather as academics, a role that involves a large number of other activities that compete for time and resources, including teaching, administration, income generation, knowledge exchange, and supervision. I would also add to their mentorship, emotional labor, advocacy for reform so that like captures the sentiment that um, in assessing researchers and evaluating researchers universities usually don't um look at those activities and sort of evaluate researchers on just their research outputs which is a section of the responsibilities that an academic uh, has and yeah. so but yeah it is important
1: it is one of the main things. If you do not publish and you do not bring in money, although that one depends a little bit more institutions for some places, like I know for my institution, you don't absolutely have to bring in money to keep your job, that's not uh, a necessity, but publishing still is, like you're still expected to produce work, right? To be an active Mm -hmm. researcher.
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah, so in taking that framework, it's like, the author makes the point that even if we change the university's priorities to include open research, but we leave alone these sort of underlying capitalistic frameworks, then uh, the issue of working conditions and labor um, remains. So it could end up being, rather than publish or perish, it's just simply publish open research or perish.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. so it basically just makes, it increases the labor in the end is sort of the bottom line, right? If we keep this same structure. Right, right, exactly. What we get is just um, more work for the same amount of compensation. Yeah, absolutely. Or yes. Less, given or less. You know, inflation <laughs> and that wages don't keep up. So right. that's, I mean, that's, I say, capitalism, right? It's it's the squeezing of as much profit as possible out of people. Yeah. And yeah, if we don't challenge that, open science falls into that as well.
0: Yeah, that's so I mean. We I really appreciated that call that people advocating for open research reform should also be advocating for reform to labor structures in academia, which I think is not as on the forefront of most people in the open science movement. Maybe I'm wrong there, but like most people are motivated to try and improve science, right? And try to improve Mm -hmm. the quality and the rigor of the work not necessarily thinking about the um structures within which science is being done um, with some exceptions of course like I think Mm -hmm. um for example the open science framework is trying to make things easier to make it easier to upload data and to register so it doesn't take up so much time so for example but on the on the grand scale we should
1: be thinking about this more Um, absolutely because it's all related right we don't operate in a vacuum. We, we operate in these systems that already exist. And if yeah. we don't question those things, they're still going to uh, trickle through or show themselves right. in different ways.
0: Right. Absolutely.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: another thing I liked about this um, paper is it gave me a bit of uh, like language or vocabulary to use to describe mm-hmm. these things. Mm-hmm. Um, so workload models, was sort of something I picked up from this paper so I understood I, oh, I've i always known that it's like oh you should we're going to pay you for like doing this or doing that not sort of in terms of the hours that you put into this but in terms of completion of the thing that you are meant to do so for example oh you're teaching a course this semester we pay you this rate for that um, but work contracts in this way underpay or a way to like squeeze out the 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 worker so um it's written here um, workload models are also a useful tool for a capitalistic university seeking to understand and maximize the efficiency of the deployment of its human resources and goes on to say a mechanism for universities to demand unrealistic levels of work from academics by underestimating the time Mm. taken for different activities such that a significant proportion of the actual work that academics do is unaccounted for and that just I knew that but seeing that written in words just was like yes like that it's absolutely a way to squeeze everything out of the employee the academic employee.
1: Um, Mm -hmm. Because they work on
0: percentages.
1: Yeah. Right. I think as far as I know, every institution has a different model, even different departments, I think, have different workloading models, the way that they implement them. But it is generally on percentages. And it is different also based on what kind of position you have. Um, I know that myself as an ECR, at least I have more research time carved out in my workload model, which is really nice, right? It gives you time to set yourself up, to apply for grants, to get yourself, yeah, established at this new institution and get your lab going if you want to have a lab, because that's also not necessary.
0: Yeah, so like, yeah, that's really helpful to be explicitly clear. It's like a workload model contract may look like, you know, 40% teaching, uh, 40% research and 20% administration, something like this. It's like reported as percentages, but by doing that, it's not saying, oh, but how many hours am I meant to work overall and what are the outputs Of these three things um, meant to produce and how how am i evaluating all these things and really just becomes oh i always need to like you're meant to take this many hours but realistically you have to do way more than that to achieve the outcome Mm. to progress to be promoted to not be fired (laughs) like it's ridiculous um,
1: and I'm, I'm tracking, we'll talk about this more later, but I'm sort of tracking my time and the way that I've approached it so far on this, you know, first starter year, reduced teaching load, more research, overall reduced load, is that I'm viewing it as like, okay, so I'm on a contract for, I think it's 37.5 or 38 hours a week, I should know this, um, <laughs> and if I'm given 45% research time, then it's okay, what's 45% of that many hours a week? Hmm although it might not map out completely weekly because if you're in the middle of, you know, exam and marking season, then you're not gonna have that much time to do your research. It's gonna go during the summer. And like, there are, you know, it's not actually on a week-to-week basis. It's more in a yearly cycle, but that's sort of how I'm approaching it. Like, okay, that's the amount of hours that I've been given to do this. So here's how much time I'm gonna try to allocate to these things to try yeah. to actually fit it in now. It's been working so, so far. <laughs> But right. we'll, we'll see as things increase but I think that's one of the maybe useful things with the workload model is that it allows you to say well here's the amount of time you've given me that's it that's what I've done if right. you want me to do more then give me more allocation to do that
0: right and yeah so all of that prevents the harm which I also from this paper got like vocabulary for they call mm-hmm. it a workload creep yes so it, yeah, it, it makes you feel icky, right? But it's, that, it's exactly what you were um, trying to prevent, which is them giving you more work in terms of hours and without, you know, actually uh, making space for it. So like, you know, oh, we expect you to work, to mark for at a standard of, it then takes like 30 minutes per script. So overall it should be however many, however long. But mm-hmm. in reality, it doesn't take 30 minutes. To mark all the papers because of maybe it takes long to mark this stuff, maybe because of administration, you know, dealing with whatever interface you have to use to mark the thing and you know, reporting to students, students, you know, trying to contest the mark, things like that. It obviously doesn't it all these things add up and it won't take
1: X minutes per
0: script. So yeah.
1: then the way I understand it is it's a sort of an average but I don't know, right? Because I'm sure when you start, it takes longer to mark the first few and then as you go through it, it might get faster. But yeah, like you say, things could come up. I'm not sure that students can contest work here. The UK has so many steps to confirm marks. (laughs) I find it a little bit extra (laughs) given what I'm used to in North America, but there are like you, you mark and then there's sometimes second marking and then there's an internal... I think examiner that checks it and then there's an external board that reviews it and the marks are checked like four times for the release. And then, but that also means that students can't contest them. Right. Unless there's been an actual mistake in like transferring the mark from a paper to like a, in a different spreadsheet or something, then sure. But that sort of ensures that I guess once the mark is done, it's done.
0: Yeah. Right. So, uh, I would like to add another term to this sort of workload creep which is wage theft like to me it's you're the employer not paying the employee for the work they've done (laughs) so wage theft um and we'll talk Mm -hmm. about this a little bit later but um i think being mindful of this happening is a good way of navigating these kind of um, situations. So in the paper, again, it's kind of like uh, how what you were um, thinking about and just mentioning, um, some advice to early career academics uh, from the paper is to say no to requests, which is not always mm-hmm. possible, but I thought this framing was really interesting. It was to ask the manager, what would you like me to stop doing? So yeah. the implication is you're already full up, you're already maximized, in on your workload so if you're asked to do something new like you have you have they, it has to come at a cost to like you're, you're telling your manager look i'm already at my maximized workload you've got to i've gone gonna like you've got to say what i shouldn't do so i could replace it with the thing that you want me to do and i think that's a really that's something i've never tried or i've never done uh, but that seems like a really good way to approach that uh, issue Especially that's assuming you-
1: that workloads get to 100%, which I, as far as I know, most institutions don't get you to 100% for those things that come up. I'm put, doing air quotes now, <laughs> and that's, that's how they absorb it in. You know, it's like, oh, yes, well, this is, you know, you've got, I think they try to fill up to like about 90% type thing. And then it's the next other 10% is for stuff that comes up so that you have the capacity. So you can never actually go to a manager and say, I'm at 100% because that's not a thing.
0: Right. But I would take it from a less, um, so I guess my perspective is coming from a less uh, uh, contractual sense. I'm Mm. saying, hey, like it's a signal to your manager. Hey, I'm operating, even if maybe contractually, I'm not at 100%, I'm at 90% or whatever, but like I am operating at 100% right now. Yeah, Yeah. like like, like you have to understand that uh, you're adding workload to me when mm. I'm operating at 100, so therefore you need to tell me what like I should stop doing so I can because I can't work anymore. Yes, yeah. Um, and
1: there's you know you can have based on very different institutions, and some managers are really great. It would be like yeah, okay, that makes sense. And then at other places you might not be so lucky. So it's right. not actually uniform, which is unfortunate. But yeah, you know, so but, uh, but we can yeah
0: we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later about how one may navigate that and maybe tips on how to.
1: Yeah. Uh, deal with that.
0: Uh, so, okay. So, so, so we've got some listening. new vocabulary
1: now, which is really nice. So I've got we're talking about workload models. We've got workload creep, and what was the last one?
0: Just sort of like how open research reform.
1: Yeah. Oh, this is
0: not a vocabulary, but open how open research reform may induce additional workloads to um, researchers. So we also need reform of academic labor structures such that that doesn't happen as well as improve uh ensure open research reforms actually can uh easy to implement like always lower lower the barriers when we can in terms of not just like knowledge to implement but also you know time and effort it takes to do the thing i.e to upload data to um, upload code or to write code always be lowering those barriers so that you know, it doesn't end up burdening um, researchers and also, you know, for as universities should also be mindful that trying to assess and evaluate these things or trying to um, mandate these things is going to incur a cost to many of the researchers and assessment should be changed accordingly.
1: Maybe it's time to get into it. It's so yeah. a pretty big appetizer, but there's still more to talk about. So let's keep on just keep on chatting in the main course.
0: Yeah, what I would like to chat about a bit more is, um, so one of the assumptions in this paper is whether open research reforms necessarily will incur a cost, let's say, will always add on. And Mm. to me, I was thinking throughout, like, yes, but um, there are ways where you could imagine at the time being reallocated instead or actually saved. So for, for example, let's take a registered report account.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: To me, getting review in the first stage is simply just shifting that time taken and the later stage when you're responding to reviews, it's just moving that time to early in the process. And it's probably going to be saving you time, especially in the case where um, there's a confound in your research or the reviewer requests another experiment to add to the study or something like this, you get that feedback way earlier and so sort of can probably address that, you know, more ti- in a more timely manner such that it saves you time in the long run.
1: Or, I think it's also more useful because even like I was just saying earlier, I'm reviewing a, a paper now and it's, it's really good, but I, I can't make any comments on the structure of what they did because it's done already. right. Like, I, I'm not going to bother thinking about what they could have done differently because it doesn't matter. Right. Like all I'm doing is trying to say, okay, how can we make this clearer? How can we make this like a stronger paper? That's mm-hmm. all I can do, and that's all I, I mean. It's a nicer job than trying to tear someone down. That's not what I'm trying. You know, it's no fun, and not. I don't think the point of reviewing. But anyways, yeah. The point. The point being, and as as a person who publishes as well, I would much rather get feedback before I do the study afterwards and someone's saying well you should have done it this way and I'm like okay cool well,
0: I'll do it again. so <laughs> right
1: what am I going to do about it
0: <laughs> that could yeah can, can we please see the value in what I've done not like tell exactly. me what you what I did was invalid because yeah. of something that you think therefore I need to do more to like address that like I don't know that changing perspective is kind of important um
1: yeah so but, I really like that sort of format and yeah like you said I don't think it necessarily maybe reduces labor but it just it moves it moves the timeline around
0: right yes um and also I think so like for example in terms of things like having your data or your code openly available and things like that or having the goal of that it forces you to organize your data and code in a way that is you know accessible readable transparent and so on mm-hmm. so forth like the fair the fair principles yeah um uh yeah you can do like, all the things
1: beforehand so everything is already organized and ready to go basically
0: right and i think the benefit of that is actually to the researcher mostly because mm-hmm. they save time by because oftentimes you'll let's say you submit a uh, your paper to the mat, like your manuscript to the journal you're not thinking about that for however long it takes for the reviews to come back, let's say two months. And then you've got to pick it back up again and be like, oh, wait, what does this data do? Like, what what have I done? Uh, Mm How have I organized things? So I think that's a time save for the researcher, actually, to think about their process in an open and transparent manner. There are benefits and gains to the researcher, I think for taking on these open research practices. But do Hmm. I also think there is an additional time cost? Yes, probably, Um, but it's in relative terms, right? Like you can do shoddy research and just like pump out like crappy papers if you want. And obviously doing open, transparent, rigorous research is gonna take longer than that. And it should, like rigor is like in my view, Double checking, like taking the time to like sit on things and reanalyzing, and like you know ensuring reproducibility. Like, of course, that's going to take additional time, but that's what we want. (laughs) We want science to be yeah. The whole
1: process, right? Yeah. Yeah, we
0: want science to have a bit more rigor to it and to think about that a bit more. So yes, Mm -hmm. science is so almost like like I'm like yeah, researchers should incur more of a cost. We should be almost like it's the (laughs) the, the problem. the problem is making it too easy and like having it like shitty papers just get into journals, right? And so if yeah. we switch that and then also switch the academic labors to be like, okay, let's not evaluate researchers on quantity of papers or, you know, prestige of the journal that it happens to end up in because that's a, f- I should, I'm trying to stop myself from swearing. That's, that's a, you know, like, you know, fuck it. That's a, that's a fucking raw. Like, that's stupid. Like, that doesn't work as we think it does. Um, yeah, just like re- removing those, um, sort of pressures and those structures and expectations in research assessment and evaluation would do a lot of good for, um, how the process can unfold, could unfurl rather than having this weird time yeah. pressure always on top of, and this workload pressure on top of the researcher. Yeah. Uh. At the same
1: time, a couple of things that come to mind is, because we we talk about this also in our Feminist Space and Dream manuscript that we're working on, that we should be evaluating on quality instead of quantity. But quality according to who? Like, who's dictating Mm -hmm. what makes a good paper? Right, because we're talking about citation and this idea that, you know, we have this disproportionate citation of white men in, in academia and the literature. And it's, the argument is like, well, we shouldn't just be citing that. We should be citing papers for their quality. But the reason that citation is typically a proxy for quality is that people in a meritocracy would be citing papers that are good. But we know that's not the case. That is definitely not the case. So how are we actually measuring quality and who gets to say? Right. Right. Because peer review, as we know, also has its issues because it depends who's reviewing. It depends on what their version of quality is. Yeah. So I think it's it's an open question. I don't think we have an answer, but it's something that. Yeah, it just sort of came to mind, but also in talking about data and have it organized and open, and that's useful for you as a researcher for sure, but I'm reading a book called Data Feminism, and it's just available for free online, and in this last chapter, they're talking about, they they link clean data and tidying, specifically also citing the tidy verse Mm -hmm. package. (laughs) Great. Great to eugenics, because that's where statistics came from. And this idea of tidying things, of cleaning them up, of get, cutting up out the outliers, oh. making it all pretty, making it all nice, that's grounded in eugenics. That doesn't mean all stats are eugenics, that's not what they're saying, but the, that history is there. So it's not completely detached. So what happens when we clean data? What's being left out? What, mm. What's being left out, but also what's being imposed?
0: Mm.
1: What we think should look tidy.
0: Right, right.
1: And also this idea of having strangers in the data set, right? The, the reason that we have to organize it so well, or the reason that it helps to do that is so that other people can come in, mm-hmm. but we still can't completely convey all of the context. So there's, they, they tie this to street names, right? They are like, there was no need for street names until strangers started moving around. Right. Cause if right, you live right. there, it's your community, you know, Yes. The street names are for strangers. And I was just like, whoa, that's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> and similar for data, right? So you know your data fairly fairly well, presumably. You know the context of which was collected. You know all the details. But what happens when someone else goes in? Right. But this is the goal of open science, right? Of open data is that someone else can go in. Yeah. What's, what's the consequence of that?
0: It's a, I see that as like a function of transparency, like how transparent like yes the data in themselves may be accessible but how transparent was the process of getting that data made like how how do we see how that data was collected and the way it happens and like contextual things like who did the who did the data collection where was it you know like all those Mm -hmm. kind of things are they accessible to anyone, a stranger who wants to look at, look through the data, uh, I think that's important. Uh, yeah,
1: but also like that other person might have different ideas, might see something different that someone else didn't, mm-hmm. and that could be a good thing, or it could be taken out of context and used, I don't know, in some harmful way, Right, depending on what that data is. I think in like what I do, it's less likely to happen. But in this particular book, they give examples of, you know, what happens when non-binary people become visible. what happens when trans people become visible, and someone can see that data and use it in really nefarious ways.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's uh, that, that, the cleaning, and yeah, that's a really good framing for it, because like, I'm thinking, like, i thinking, thinking about it now in terms of inference, it's sort of like, oh, um, we control for this covariate that makes our data messy, and look, we have a clean relationship. But the, yeah. and then the inference is like, therefore, this is the relationship. When it's like, no, you've just like, you've literally just like, you've controlled for the variable that you're making uh, inference about. <laughs> like, what's the, I think one paper that I saw recently was did something like, um, something along the lines of we controlled for the um, amount of exercise that uh, everyone in our sample does, and turns out everyone like um, expends the same amount of energy something like this and it's like well yeah you just you've you've taken out the (laughs) variant the variable of energy expenditure and then found that everyone's the same and (laughs) it's it's kind of like yeah well take okay so that's a um, somewhat you can see the problems with that inference already, but now imagine a more gray situation where the thing you're covarying um to tidy the relationship is now something like not really theory driven or not really agreed upon or potentially harmful, then that's mm-hmm. not good, right? And it's also just not good inference. Um, mm-hmm. So Anyways, yeah. to
1: tie it back to labor, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so what that means is that if, if we do want to make data more fair and so this whole thing around open science, it, it does take more work to produce good metadata. And it's something that I don't, like in my experience, isn't really part of the workflow. I know it isn't for me. It's something that in retrospect, I have to go, oh, right. Like when I left my lab hmm. um, that I was in as a postdoc, right? I was like, oh, right. And I spent a so, considerable amount of time writing up metadata for all the data that I was leaving behind, right? Cause that belongs to the lab. But if someone else goes to look at it, they got to know what's going on. Cause right, I produced right. it. I, I made, I know what's there, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's yeah. not clear to anybody else, right? How is this data collected? What is this variable? What are the different levels? Where did it come from? Did mm-hmm. it come from a questionnaire? Did it come from right? The, did it come, where, what yeah. is that? There's a series of numbers. Where are the condition levels? What is the code for them? all of this stuff. Yes. Yeah. But it was something that I did was like, oh, right, shoot, before did, I go, uh, yeah. I gotta do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> not yeah, like yeah. part of the workflow, but I mean, it should be, but that's something additional.
0: Yeah, I it see. Mean, it's actually
1: necessary, but that we choose to do if we want to engage with open science.
0: Yeah, back to the point of like reallocation of time. I mm. see pre-registrations kind of doing that. Like, I, mm. although it's not a real main focus of what pre-registrations does, you could Mm. incorporate metadata like that in the pre-registration or the code or the intention at least. And that's part of the way, right? So yeah, there is some reallocation of time and effort there, but you're right, like doing the due diligence of making your data fair and including metadata, including contextual things and qualitative things and so on and so forth. Um, to paint a more transparent picture of the experiment it takes effort for sure it takes it takes mm-hmm. a lot of effort but um I think it's necessary the problem is in my eyes the relativeness to other science where you don't where people can co-spy and be rewarded for not doing that mm. right so yeah yeah
1: I mean there is talk where it was sort you of know, shifting towards open science that there's an impression that fairly soon not in the future if you don't open science like you're not competitive on the job market anymore that it will become a requirement
0: mm-hmm.
1: but it's yeah it's the adapt the adaptation of going from how we do things now to how we'll do things in like a decade will include thinking about what that means for for labor Mm -hmm. and how it's going to look like, where it goes, how it's going to be rewarded, how it's going to be structured. What does that mean for our other roles as academics, like you said, with the teaching and everything else? How can it be incorporated into teaching? That's that's so, so, so important, right? Because if it's not incorporated to the curriculum and you want to practice open science and your students that you're supervising don't know anything about it because they're not taught, then all that labor goes on to you Mm -hmm. to teach your student. Right. Yeah, I mean, they yeah. can, you know, maybe point them in the right direction, but depends also on, on the level and how keen they are, because the opportunity is the same. And so it's, but all of that isn't really built in. It's just sort of like, oh yeah, your job is a supervisor, but it's right, an additional right. layer.
0: Yeah, thinking about how de- let's say a department wants to prioritize open research and you know transparent and rigorous research. Mm-hmm. Um, like you would need to sort of train your graduate students in potentially reproducible coding practices. Like how how many academics, how many researchers get computer science training? Like barely, yeah. bare scratch service. If we talk think about statistics research, uh, statistics in research, how many people know the math? How many people like really understand, have mastery? Over the statistical tools that they're using. You know, like a lot of that needs to be accounted for. And yes. so,
1: but also from the perspective of someone who's now teaching on a stats on a master's course, the time is so limited. It is so difficult to teach everything that we need to in the amount of but, time that we have. I'm not sure that it's actually possible, right? To teach all of the, the theory of why we're doing the particular tests and teaching the test and teaching people to code right? because ours right. is an R-based course, which I think is good, but it just means that there's so much to cover in the span right, of life.
0: Right, right. But that's my point. Like, like okay, oh. we need... So more time needs to be dedicated to this stuff. That means more labor and employment is required and structures need to be changed. So grad school, yeah. how they're... How their courses are um, arranged and designed Mm -hmm. so that they can navigate the new um, research world which is open and transparent and better so like yeah this it requires thinking about academic labor you're not gonna throwing this simply on faculty to achieve this makes no sense it's a non-starter like you've gotta uh yeah you've gotta like think about this stuff which I don't think happens (laughs) uh, to to be frank so and that thereby the workload gets put on the individual researcher to do all this stuff and to fumble their way through learning how open science should be done or transparent science or how things should be done or better better done uh, best practices with different things like yeah and that's a whole lot of research and effort though you know reproducibility journal clubs are a way of lessening the workload or sharing that workload between whoever the community, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Like these you know hidden curriculum items and uh, you know these processes that are a little bit opaque or unclear uh, are issues for everyone and so uh, sharing that in a journal club community setting or open science grassroots community setting will probably help share the workload um in some way so seamless plug there good job yeah thank you thank you um, but uh this is i am frustrated and, and, and angry at all of this it's just how did it come to this point um it's the It feel
1: like it's time to rant then yeah wanna rant? i'm okay. ready i'm ready okay let's take a break from solid foods then and we'll go <laughs> cool off with some iced tea
0: oh okay. Yeah, I really need to cool off. Um, (laughs) uh, It's it's just, uh, so speaking about reproducibility journal clubs, uh, I've been organising this journal club at the university for a few years, and I know, I sort of know, (laughs) I was too strong, I sort of know that I've made a positive impact on a lot of grad students by revealing the hidden curriculum items by mentoring them in these open research practices and getting them to think about it. Mm-hmm. Getting them to think about philosophy of science and theory development and what mm-hmm. blah, 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 blah. It's all volunteer, it's all grassroots. Like in the end, does do I really, like am I recognized or valued for it? Mm, I don't know. i put a lot of time and effort into it mm-hmm. and to try and shape uh, and change the format and, I guess I'm not getting the recognition from the right places like I think the people who attend Mm. are like this is great thank you awesome but people higher up in the department or wherever in like employment let's say for people who's uh like let's say I'm on the job market they'll see that and be like okay but they don't understand like what impact that's had so it's like okay well I know I'm doing something positive and great but yeah. I'm getting no I'm not getting just desserts <laughs> just yeah. like it's just it's just yeah. not it's just not happening and you know yeah.
1: um,
0: I think this this is just one example but I think generally postdocs get this is the the way of the postdocs <laughs> this is what usually happens to postdocs and other maybe senior grad students those in that little that stage where they have that sort of they've been through the you know grad school process and they sort of got wisdom to share that that kind of labor falls on them like mm. continuing you know, within lab continuing the um analyses or the techniques or the methods like training usually gets passed through that way um, Yeah, so, and like, I remember, so the last year, I attended something by the National Institutes of Health. It was called this, it was this two-day workshop called the Catalyzing Communities of Research Rigor Champions. So the NIH, uh, it's definitely worth checking out. Um, They've got this whole, they've got this Office of Research and Integrity. I think it was recently started and they've on this sort of Research Rigor Champion um, project. Anyway, the point was they they invited a uh, a lot of people who are in this space from different like sort of um, different levels, let's say like department level or um, nonprofit level, like their own organization level, um, and also some of the reproducibility Kyoto um, Club organizers from North America, from the US, which was pretty cool. And I remember asking a question there. And I was, I was petrified. It was like an open mic thing again. And like, yeah. I hated it. But I was like, in all of these discussions, I was like, okay, uh, I'm going to advocate for the early career researchers here. How mm-hmm. about some of these reforms, like providing postdocs with or employment who let's say don't necessarily want to go down the tenure track faculty route, but still want to work in science, giving them the jobs to help assist or help, um, uh, you know, in, the reform yeah. movement right try and yeah. or implement or train or mentor uh, open research at different institutions <laughs> and yeah, I remember right. at the time the panel was just like uh, yeah it, I think it's great that early career researchers care about this <laughs>
1: like and I was like <laughs> sorry non-answer <laughs> yeah and I was like
0: okay uh, I, I, re- I think uh, shout out to uh, Shai Silverberg who followed up my question was like no I think we Will's talking about like actual employment opportunities yeah, yeah, yeah and, like, and then us. and then and then the panel was like yeah <laughs> so I don't know it's just it just it's so it's so short-sighted I don't understand like like you talk to any other any postdoc right now you the, the nature postdoc surveys you talk about the um you talk to any person, they're going to be like, yeah, I have like, I want to be in science. I have a lot to give. I'm motivated. I love my research topic. It's just these, you know, the barriers to staying in academia are so great that like I'm being pushed out and looking for other opportunities. Mm-hmm. Oh, at
1: this- the same time, you need to counter that a little bit. I don't know when like, the order of those episodes are going to come out, but I did talk to two people from the open research team at the University of Oslo. And we were talking actually about how there are a lot of jobs and research that aren't tenure track and that gives a lot of opportunities things like working for the library. Yes, research things like doing um, I mean we have research teams at the college and university levels that help with grant facilitation that do all Mm -hmm. of the, a lot of the admin that goes behind doing these things to do all the costing to do all the And without all that infrastructure, we wouldn't be able to do the research that we do. So I don't know if I would say there are a lot of those jobs, but like, that's an other option that does exist where you can do research. Now, the open research team at the University also, I think is not super common everywhere (laughs) that like the library has a team that explicitly does open science for the institution but like we were saying we're like we would all love to see that be more common like wouldn't it be awesome if every yes. library had a team and then you yes. get to employ all these researchers and actually increase the capacity and facilitate these kinds of things and employ people and really gainful employment <laughs> that yes serves everybody yeah that's impactful <laughs> like, what that really helps
0: yeah like <laughs> You know I yeah I think I think about this a lot so like yes open science librarians great like I see uh, there's a smattering of them in the United States and I've met some of them uh like reproducibility librarians and things like that and like yeah they're really impactful they're really helpful open access librarians like getting like making contracts so that publishers can publish open access if like by waiving the fees or by a discount fee or whatever or like all of that work is really really helpful um, I also think about um, stats experts or coding yeah. experts or uh, yeah. you know yeah data management experts that can supplement a department um, and help out whenever they're needed and consulted with like I would have loved to talk to a statistician about like some of the research or the modeling or the experimental design and I would have like like loved to get their eyes on it but that those resources and those structures just don't exist typically.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um yeah, uh I would love peer review to be a paid labor job. Like yeah. you know, in economics, data editors exist. Um, why isn't that more common? Mm-hmm. Like uh,
1: I just this is so yeah. I mean would not it be nice if peer review, like not a huge fee, but like a fee for your service. Here, can you review? Thank you. Here's a hundred bucks. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't even have to be a huge amount, but like some acknowledgement that labor has taken place and that you're contributing something critical to the process at this point we consider peer review to be absolutely critical if you don't publish peer review that doesn't count
0: yeah it's the only quality control we have right now it's kind of pretty an important role (laughs) and responsibility to have yeah Uh. and i wonder
1: like that also works into how open science has more labor like if in the review process, you're also looking at the codes and looking at the precision, looking at the stimuli and going through everything. That takes a lot more time than reading and making some comments. Yeah. And I right? do like that would be, I think an ideal way to improve peer review. I think we've talked about it before where this whole open code thing, it's not part of all of our workflows. I'm not going to go look at a paper and go, oh, I wonder what their code is and run the, all their code again. But that could be something that the reviewer can do.
0: Right. I But do that takes that. time. Yeah, I do that, uh, which is a great segue into our next segment, actually. Um, how, like I do think about how long it takes for me to do my peer review. Like I have a blog post on my peer review process. And in that blog post, I could say how much time it took. Uh, so yeah, I mean, Sarah, do you want to introduce this next segment?
1: Yeah, 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 so let's wash it all down now. With yeah, some I, need a, advice. I need to
0: relax. Yeah, I need to, yeah, my blood pressure is a bit too high right now. <laughs> but,
1: let's have some dessert.
0: Uh, so, yeah, so um, specifically on peer review, um, uh, I tracked the amount of time it took to do each of the reviews. Um, and we'll talk about this a little bit more. But um, I do check the data. I do check the code. Uh, I, I requested on the first round of review if it's not available I do all of that and on average um across the I think nine or ten that I track the time to do These are all first round reviews it took about 10 hours per review um including yes. reading how do
1: you accept checking 10 days. reviews well I like three a year that's also you know, how much I'm asked I'm not asked very much right now <laughs> I couldn't complain too much but
0: yeah don't be quiet about that because you'll just get more review <laughs> requests. <laughs> Not on the requests. <laughs> uh I I get a, a decent amount I guess and so but I just think, see it as like service right like someone should be doing that and i like you know the ratio that I'm meant to keep is three to one like three yeah. reviews for every one paper I publish yeah but no I do way more than that because I'm me but yeah. The, <laughs> I don't know I have problems with that but like yeah and I have in my review like spotted problems or like whatever or like had to re go through the data or like been like hey I couldn't reproduce this result actually this changes your whole thing because I couldn't reproduce the significant interaction like right? like what's up with that and like stuff like that um and so if I did not do that work I think about how papers could have gotten through right Mm. and made it through to the end and that's scary to me and that's not my Mm. way of science so I I kind of like it's part of me to have to do this and want to do this yeah but anyway the the reason I was able to figure out it took takes about 10 hours on average is because um I tracked the time so I use an online app to track all my labor it's called toggle t-o-g-g-l toggle track um And it's simply, I was just like, it's like a timer. Like I was pressing the time and I was saying what I was doing for uh, however long I was doing. And uh, I have it categorized in some way. I have it categorized by research project as Mm. well as tagged by like the thing I'm doing. So like data analysis, um, data collection or theory or writing or whatever. And, or even like admin, like respond to emails or so on and so forth. And I've got this for like reproducibility, and so on and so forth. So I was been tracking my time for, how, for what I was doing. And one of those categories was peer review. So I could see on average I was doing 10 hours per review. Uh, yeah, and I started doing time tracking because I wasn't, I didn't know where my time was going. <laughs> like I had no idea how I was spending my time. And I know you do something similar now. Well, you started doing something yeah, similar.
1: Yeah, I started with, with this job. It's something I came across on Twitter. I don't think I kept the tweet, so unfortunately, I can't reference the person who talked about it.
0: Shout out to them anyway. Yeah.
1: yeah, and it was another fairly new faculty member because um, what I was told several times before I started was just be really, really careful that you don't let teaching gobble up all of your research time because it's very easy to do. And the advice in this tweet was that she, she shared her system where she categorizes the time. So similar to what you're doing, but mine's at a bit, I guess, higher level because now it's faculty and not quote unquote, just research. So I have research, teaching, service, planning slash reflection and administration. as my have categories, they each have a color. So every day I will fill in what I did. I haven't kept specific track of exactly what the task is, but I'm starting to do that a little bit more. Um, Yeah, and then at the end of the week, I put that in my monthly layout. So at the end of the month, I can sort of, at a glance, see if I'm generally in line. What I also have in the monthly layout, I'll I'll share a photo in the the show notes so you can see what my calendar looks like. whatever the percentage is and how many hours that is quote unquote meant to equate to in Mm. a week based on my contract. Yeah, really cool. And then so I can keep track. I think that's useful for me to know where my time goes, but also useful as, you know, if we want to advocate for changing workload models or keeping track, you know, if we want evidence to say, here's how long it actually takes to do X, Y, Z, then we have that evidence to provide. Yeah. You know, the more of us who do that, then the more pressure we can, we can put on, on our employers, right? Because a few here and there isn't particularly helpful because it's just, you know, one person. Yeah. But if many of us do this, then it gives us a lot more power.
0: Yes, yes. It's more evidence. Exactly. Um, and yeah, it's really useful. Love evidence
1: for scientists.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's really useful in those conversations with your employer or your manager. So for even for postdocs, grad students or faculty, I, it's. Really useful in those conversations with your supervisor because um, supervisors often don't see the time it takes or the effort in doing something so let's say broad generalization Uh, let's say your supervisor doesn't um, know how to program (laughs) I don't know something like this and then so you're programming an experiment they probably don't have a good idea of how long it actually takes to do something. Or if they request another analysis, how long it would take to actually write the code and run it. Like they, in their mind, expect it to just like drop at a... Um, what's that drop, drop at a tip of a hat? I don't know. Um, but like to be faster, likely more faster because they're wanting the output. Um, r- they're focused on the output rather than the actual process and how long that took. And like so on and so forth. Yeah. And there are times where I've been asked
1: for some things like, "Well, why did you take you that long?" It's like, "Well, you know, I was I was writing some code and things just I had to Google things regularly. It just they like, came up.
0: Right, I right. Couldn't or, have done
1: it any faster than I did. It just it just took this much time. That's all.
0: Or like I didn't understand. Like I didn't expect to do this. Now I've got to rearrange my data and think about how that works and then write the analysis and then yeah so it's like it never
1: works the first time the amount of times I've had to rewrite a lot of code rerun something it never ever works the first time like I I ran an analysis recently for a conference later this summer and I realized later that I had made a mistake in the code where I had I was trying to remove I think it was a participant but I had used the wrong data set so essentially I was comparing one data set to itself but with one different uh, participant lacking in each instead of the two different data sets with one participant right out in each and so but I had missed it and the first time I, I wrote it all up and I was like okay hey, this is the results and I was like oh shit and some I was I happened to catch it like who else would have known
0: right it's good that you caught it though you should yeah. be
1: what was it's wild about it is that when it was the same data set compared to each other there was a difference a significant effect of that data set because that's a variable live versus in lab mm-hmm. but when it was actually the two different data sets compared there was no significant difference between the two and I was like well oh. that makes me trust p-values a heck of a lot less
0: oh wow <laughs> right? that's like insane
1: it really illustrates how kind of random <laughs> this statistical testing can be Right. It's
0: you gotta be careful about like it spits an output. You gotta make sure, yeah. right? And and that takes yeah. time, right? You can't just be like, yep, drop of a hat. Like this is definitely the thing I did, right? Yeah. So anyway, back to the back to the point, tracking the amount of time it takes yeah. to do that. And so it's not just like literally the time taken to write the code, it's also maybe the time Googling or the time reading and thinking about yeah. it and so on and so forth. Tracking that amount of time and then going to your survivors being like, hey, like this is how long it took, maybe calibrates them on their expectations, but also allows you to evidence, hey, I have been doing this. It's just like, to you, yeah, it took me forever to take the, to generate this output, but it, that's what it takes. Um, yeah. And also in times where tangible output isn't, like physical output isn't produced, like reading, thinking about theory, um, developing designs, like all that stuff is mm-hmm. also then tracked and you can say, yeah, look, I have nothing to show you, but like, this is what I've spent my time doing. And yeah. yeah. And then it's like a managing your manager thing as well. Like you can say, hey, this is how I'm spending my time right now across the week. Do you want me to stop doing this and replace it with that? Like, cause I'm filling out the whatever. This is how I fill out my 40 hours, let's say. Um, so like, that's like, all of this data is really helpful gives calibrates you and what you're doing like it calibrates you on how you're spending your time and maybe Mm -hmm. where certain inefficiencies or where you lose time for example or whether you're working beyond your limits and eventually getting to burnout like you're like oh i am i'm spending like why am i spending time like working after dinner reading something blah 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 like like that may help you curb eventual burnout or fatigue and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. yeah because um, then
1: you, you can say this is how many hours I'm contracted to this is how many hours I'm working right that's it that's what I can achieve in this many hours right look at what I've achieved
0: yeah yeah exactly exactly yeah that's how much time it takes yeah any other side benefits of time tracking
1: that you've noticed um no that's the main one it helps keep me on track mostly one thing I was worried about was that I was like, oh, but then I'm spending time doing all this time tracking. It's taking time away from actually doing things, but like it takes five minutes, yeah, at the end of the week <laughs> yeah. to just transfer. It doesn't actually take that long. During the day, I'll sometimes, you know I'll finish doing something and I'll just do a couple highlight lines. you know, it doesn't, it doesn't take long to actually work in. I was worried about sustaining it, but actually it's been quite easy to sustain yeah. doing this.
0: Uh, The the app I use, Toggle Track, um, it's almost does, it does all those things automatically. Like it's like a Pomodoro, it's got a Pomodoro timer built in, so you can use that. Uh, If you organize it by projects, it can add up the amount of time you spend. It shows you the amount of time per week by category. It's great. Um, And I also want to say like, I think as long as it takes for you to do it, it's really good reflection. Like it's really helpful internal reflection about what you're doing, and how how you're spending your time which is I mean life is important there's things beyond research and academia and time should be dedicated to those things too because life is precious
1: so important
0: uh yeah I think that's a good place to stop do you want to sign
1: yeah
0: yeah do you want to sign off um where can we find you where can we where can we look search for you
1: Uh, I am mostly on Twitter and TikTok. So Twitter, you can find me at Sarah underscore Sove on TikTok at Madame YYT. That's M-A-D-O-M-Y-Y-T, where I'm documenting my job, basically, a daily video on what it's like starting up a feminist music science lab.
0: Yeah, very cool. Very exciting. Uh, You can find me on uh, Twitter while I'm... I'm stepping back from Twitter oh. gradually, yeah, mm-hmm. so I'm only really using Twitter to really advertise. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I'm at Twitter at Wilnyam, and you can also find me on Mastodon at the same thing wilnyam at feder fetiscience, babyscience.org. dot uh, that's the way you can follow me. and yeah, uh, hope you enjoyed listening to to this podcast episode. Uh, reach out. Let us know how what you thought of this episode come. We'd love hearing your comments and feedback. Let us know what topics you want to hear about in future as well. So
1: Yeah, come visit me at SIPs.
0: Yeah, come visit Sarah. Go visit Sarah at SIPs. Bye. Uh, yeah. Keep doing good work. Bye, everyone. <laughs> Bye.